Tonight we're looking at Isaiah chapter 28. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 28, where we'll study the parable of the plowman. We'll get to the parable in just a moment. Um, this is a parable about a farmer. A lot of Jesus' parables were about farmers. And uh, farmers have a hard job. A lot of us don't realize that. I did some summer work for farmers. Growing up in Texas, uh, everything around me was a wheat field or a cattle ranch or something. So that's where the jobs were. And I worked for one man, and one day we, we took a break, and he asked me, he said, do you think my job is stressful? Well, I didn't say this to him, but I didn't think it was very stressful. I thought he was very fortunate to have all that land and to be able to work outside and to be his own boss. And so I said, yes, because I knew that's what he wanted me to say. And I think he knew I didn't really, that I really wasn't convinced that his job was stressful. So he explained to me, he said, I don't have control over the main things that I depend upon, the sun and the rain. And he says, I often don't know what I'm going to get paid from year to year. And he said, not only is my job stressful, he says, I think I have the most stressful job in the world. Well, everybody thinks that he or she has the most stressful job in the world, but he made some good points. And ever since then, I've thought about the farmer differently. Uh, the weather is unpredictable. The crops are unpredictable. The market for food is unpredictable. And so farming can be very difficult. Not only that, think about this. A farmer doesn't just do one job. He has to wear a lot of different hats. So he has to be a horticulturalist because he has to know crops. He has to grow them for food. He has to uh, grow hay for his cattle and feed. For his livestock, he has to be a zoologist. He has to be an animal expert and know uh, how to breed his animals and how to take care of them. Uh, that being said, he also has to be a veterinarian, apply medicine uh, to the animals and take care of them and treat their diseases and deliver their young. Uh, he has to be a business manager. He has to keep records and sell his crops and trade his animals and market his wares and pay his taxes. Uh, he also has to be a mechanic. He has to keep all his equipment in good working order. He has to be a meteorologist because so much of his work depends on the weather. And uh, he has to know what's coming and make plans accordingly. And there are probably a lot of other things that, that I haven't included in this. What I'm trying to say is, we ought to have a lot of respect for the farmer. It requires a lot of wisdom and expertise to be a farmer. And you see that kind of respect and admiration in the text tonight, which is Isaiah chapter 28, verses 23 and following. Isaiah here tells a parable that reveals his admiration for farmers. And uh, all that being said, let's read the verses together. Isaiah 28, beginning verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, 
put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and immer as the border. For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with the threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No. He does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. There are two practical points of wisdom that are revealed immediately upon reading that parable. And the first is timing. You notice that the the farmer doesn't just plow and he doesn't just sow. He, He waits on the proper timing and he pays attention to the season and the growth of his crops and acts accordingly. So timing is the first point of wisdom. And the second point of wisdom from this is discrimination. Uh, He treats the crops differently according to what they need. So he doesn't thresh the dill, but he beats it with a stick to process it. And he doesn't lightly beat the grain, but he has to crush the grain to mill it so that he can make bread out of it, or others can. Timing and discrimination, that's two of the points of wisdom I think Isaiah is driving at as he's telling this parable. Where does a farmer get this unusual wisdom? Where does he learn what to do and how to be successful? Through general revelation. Isaiah says that God teaches him. What he means by that is the farmer wisely pays attention to nature. He pays attention to what his father and his father and his father have taught him through experience and through trial and error. And so he is rightly instructed, verse 26. His behavior here is meant to be an illustration of God's dealings with humanity because the farmer acts wisely according to the providence of God. We can see God's dealings in that illustration, that analogy. Let me give you a little bit of background here so you can set this parable in its proper historical perspective It's during the time of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, king of Judah. And the problem is he's made a coalition revolting against the Assyrians. And uh, like some of the others we've talked about in these parables, he is trying to make an alliance with the other world power, Egypt. And this is against the will of the Lord. God doesn't want this. Egypt, for one thing, was not very dependable. And Isaiah talks about that in chapter 31. It was foolish to enter into any treaty to avoid God's purposes. And so Isaiah says in Isaiah 28 verse 15 that by making this covenant with Egypt, he was making a covenant of death. He's warning him that this is the wrong way to go. This is not what he should do. Nothing would come out of this alliance but disaster. The rulers of Judah along with this were drunk, They were corrupt. Uh, In chapter 28, you see them mocking Isaiah. And so Isaiah is telling them, you're going to be destroyed because of your corruption and because of the alliances you make with Egypt. And this news is surprising to them and it's shocking. And that's why Isaiah tells this parable. He's showing something about God's dealings with humanity to try to to get them to understand what is about to happen. 
And uh, we'll, we'll use that as an introduction and get into the practical lessons from this parable. What does it teach us about God's dealings with humankind? Here's the first thing. Number one, God doesn't have to explain himself. He is the explanation. Think about the farmer. What dictates his behavior? Why does he plow when he plows and harvest when he harvests? Why does he do that? He does it because his, his behavior is dictated by nature. He's not following some philosophy he has developed or learned from school. He's doing what nature dictates. He's aligning himself with natural law. He's submitting to it. He's not telling the world how to work. He's watching the world, paying attention to it, and adjusting his behavior accordingly because he knows that he'll never be as strong as nature. He'll never be able to force the rain to fall or the sun to shine. He has to adjust himself. So that's why he plows and plants in the spring and harvests in the fall and prepares in the winter. That's why he scatters the dill and cumin, but he plows rows for the wheat. That's why he's behaving the way that he does. To be successful, farmers have to learn the ways of nature and act accordingly. Why does he plant in the spring and why does the soil have to be warm for the seed to germinate? You know, we can um, give scientific explanations, but the answer is that's just the way nature works. And if you try to fight it, you're going to lose. Because as I said, nature is more powerful than we are. Well, you may have noticed that the same is true with God. In fact, God is behind nature. You can try to overpower him and put your will before his own, but God's will will always be done. Something I've noticed, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but God doesn't take a whole lot of time to explain his ways to mankind in Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples here. Uh, Job is a good one to go to because Job was in this inexplicable situation where he was suffering and he felt he was suffering unjustly. He thought, as a righteous man, I shouldn't have to be going through this. Nobody should have to go through this kind of thing. Look at uh, Job 23, verses 8 and following. He says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. He's saying, I'm looking for you, God, and I can't find you. I don't see you in any of this. And I know later the Lord comes in a whirlwind and speaks with Job, but in this moment, there's nothing but silence. And even when the Lord speaks to Job, he doesn't explain his actions. He asks Job questions that Job can't answer. And, and this whole exercise is given in a way to say to Job... You just need to trust me. You need to quit asking me to give an explanation for myself, and you just need to trust me because I am God. Another example is uh, Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19. Colton Wells spoke at the family retreat on Wednesday night. He did a great job, and this was his text, 1 Kings 19. 
You remember Elijah was running from Jezebel. He went out, he got under a juniper tree or a broom tree, and he just asked the Lord to take his life. He was ready to die. And the Lord asked him a couple of times, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And this is one of his answers in verse 10. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, Lord, you've got some explaining to do. But what does God tell him? He doesn't justify, he doesn't dignify Elijah's complaints with a response. Instead, he gives him work to do. He tells him to go anoint a new king. He tells him to go appoint Elisha as a prophet to succeed him in his work. And then he drops out of the picture again. He doesn't take time to explain his actions. One last example in Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1. A background here is Babylon, a pagan nation that doesn't honor God at all, is about to destroy Jerusalem. And Habakkuk knows this because he's a prophet. He's been warning the people. The people won't amend their ways. But he knows we're bad, but we're not as bad as Babylon. This didn't make any sense to him. Habakkuk's often called the questioning prophet. And here's one of his questions in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? But again, God doesn't explain himself. And at the end of the story, at the end of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk just decides, I don't understand, but I'm going to put my trust in God. Now what these men are searching for Job, Elijah, Habakkuk, and others, is called in philosophy a theodicy. A theodicy is a vindication of God's behavior. And I don't believe you really find theodicy in the Bible. I don't think God needs to explain himself. A lot of people demand a theodicy because they think God needs to justify his actions, which is interesting to me. If you don't believe in God, then where do you get your idea of justice and righteousness? I mean, how do you accuse God of doing wrong if there is no God? Where do you get your concept of wrong? So this whole call for a theodicy is nonsensical at its premise, right? It just, it's just baseless. Uh, our concept of right and wrong come from that. So here's the explanation. Our whole idea of what's right, what's wrong, what's real, what should be, what's just, what's righteous, it's all based on God himself. So God doesn't have to explain himself. He is the explanation. This is behind John's use of the word, word, logos in Greek, to identify Christ in John chapter 1. Isn't that an odd way to introduce Jesus in John's gospel account? In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Logos. It was a Greek term 
that had to do in Greek culture with the reason for all that is, a rational explanation. And so in using that, John is saying very subtly to the culture that he's writing to, Jesus is the explanation. In the beginning was the reason for it all, the purpose, the meaning. And the meaning was with God and the meaning was God. I also think about Paul's statement in Romans 3.23 about sin. We say it all the time. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Break that down a little bit. Let's do an analysis. The first part of it, all have sinned. The word sin, harmatia, comes from um, a Greek word that literally means to miss the mark. In archery, you try to hit the bullseye. That's the mark. Well, the bullseye here is God, and to sin is to miss God. God is the standard. The second part of that is parallel to the first and falls short of the glory of God. To sin is to fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the standard. He himself is the explanation. So that's the first thing that we learn. Just as the farmer doesn't argue with the soil or the rain or the sun, he just adjusts his life accordingly, We don't need to be arguing with God and demanding an explanation. God is the explanation. Okay, here's the second point from this parable in Isaiah 28. God does just what is needed. A good farmer discriminates as he works. And in Isaiah 28, you see him adjusting his approach according to the seasons. He doesn't just plow. He doesn't just sow. He doesn't only harvest. He doesn't spend all his time threshing grain. He changes his work depending on the time. He adjusts his approach according to the crop as well. He doesn't treat dill and cumin the same way he treats wheat and barley. Look at verse 26 again. He is rightly instructed. The adverb there, rightly, is translated properly in the New American Standard Bible. Or another translation says, God teaches him order. New King James Version, he instructs him in right judgment. The word comes from the Hebrew mishpat, which is an important word that can mean just as uh, one of the attributes of God. He's fair, he's righteous, he's just. That's the word used here. In the context, it means he does what is fitting. He does what is proper. So the farmer is doing just what is needed for the moment. And again, we see a parallel between the farmer and God. Because at all times in our lives, whether we understand it or not, God does just what is needed. Does God treat everyone the same way? Well, from one point of view, we can say yes. The Bible says God shows no partiality. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. uh, That There's no discrimination with God. He doesn't judge us based on the color of our skin or where we grew up, our bank accounts, our personalities. He doesn't make superficial judgments like that. So from that point of view, yes, he treats everyone the same. But like the farmer, there is some discrimination. From another point of view, from the perspective of his judgment, we have to say, no, he doesn't treat everyone the same way. Some people have to be treated differently. 
To use the imagery of the parable, think about this in application. Number one, his actions with respect to us depend on the season. Is it the best time, for example, for him to answer your prayer? Or is it better for you, in his divine wisdom, to allow some time to pass? To let you grow a little? To let you be disciplined a little? To draw you closer to him? How would you be if he gave you exactly what you asked for, when you asked for it? I mean, if we do that to our children, we spoil our children, right? Is that the way God needs to deal with us? No, he needs to discriminate with regard to the season. The Bible says, wait, Isaiah 40, verse 31. It says, do not grow weary, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, be patient, James chapter 5, verse 7. Why? Because God's blessings don't come on our timeline, they come on his timeline. And so his actions are different for us depending on what season of life we are in and the timing, whether or not it's right for us. Another application, his actions depend on the crop or the individual. With regard to prayer, for example, he doesn't answer all prayers. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. That means I need to have a father-son or a father-daughter relationship with God through Jesus Christ before I have the privilege of praying to him at his holy throne. I can't approach his throne without the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter says, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. With regard to salvation, it depends on the individual. If you've never obeyed the gospel, if you've never believed to the point of obedience, you've never confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, you've never repented of your sins, if you've never been baptized in water for the remission of sins, then that's the first steps that you need to take in order to have a relationship with God. You're in a different position than a child of God who's been through all of that and is in a covenant relationship with God. That doesn't mean that Christian can't fall so as to be lost, but what it means is that person comes to God on different terms as a wayward child. And for him, there is a second law of pardon, as it's sometimes called. The same law that Peter gave to Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, verse 22 when after becoming a Christian he sinned, Peter said to him, Repent and pray. That's what a Christian must do. Same instructions given in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. To Christians, not to non-Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you see, there, there are different standards there, not because God is discriminating superficially, but because of the relationship you have with God and whether or not you've been washed by the blood of Christ. If you've never obeyed the gospel, it's not time to pray. It's time to obey. It's time to come to God on His terms through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. But if you've done that, you might still fall away from God, drift away from Him, and you might need the prayer 
of a brother or sister in Christ. You, you need to repent of whatever sins you're committing. You need to be open about it and confess those sins and make a firm commitment not to live that way any longer. In every case, God, as the farmer here, does exactly what we need. For some of us, he says, wait. For some of us, he blesses us. For some of us, he says, you need to be baptized. For some of us, he says, you need to repent. You need to pray. All of us are in different stations in life, and we have different needs, and God will treat us exactly as we need. Number three, notice that God is always merciful. As we look at this parable, we can see that. The farmer has to do some destructive things in his work, but notice he doesn't want to destroy continually. For example, there's something really beautiful about verse 24. These questions about the plowing. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow the ground? That wouldn't be a very good farmer, right? If he just plowed and plowed and plowed and he never planted, he never let the ground go fallow, he never watered, he just plowed. I mean, that would, that would be ridiculous. You can ruin the soil that way. And of course, you never grow a crop if you don't plant. So does he do that continually? No, he changes. There is an end to the breaking down, the cultivation. Uh, also, the farmer doesn't thresh the grain forever. Another kind of destructive action in verse 28. Does he thresh forever? No, when the chaff is separated from the wheat, the good part of the product, he stops. Otherwise, he'll completely destroy what he's actually seeking to save. In the same way, God judges the sinful, but he shows mercy, giving him an opportunity to repent and be saved. Our sins make God angry. We need to understand that. There is a righteous indignation. It is right for God to be angry and full of wrath over our rebellion against Him. But that anger is balanced with mercy so that He is not angry forever with us. I've looked this up in several passages that say that He will not be angry forever. Listen to a few of these. Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. That sounds similar to... Isaiah 28, 24, will he plow? Does he continually open and harrow the ground? Will he plow continually? He will not be angry forever. Another example is Isaiah 57, verse 16. I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Also, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. And then after the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah writes in Lamentation 3.31, The Lord will not cast off forever. His anger is balanced by His mercy. His mercy is most evident, of course, in the death of His Son, Jesus. He didn't have to send His Son to earth. Jesus didn't have to die for us. God took the initiative in drawing us to Him by sending His Son on the cross to bear our sins and to pay the debt that we owe so that we would have the possibility of life. 
But we should point out that mercy is available only on this side of eternity. When God says, I will not be angry forever, He's not saying that you will always have an opportunity to be saved. What He's saying is, this side of eternity, there is mercy. But one day, that opportunity will end. And once we pass from this life, things change. And we're in eternity, where things are forever. And whatever state we enter into eternity, that's the state in which we will remain. But we do see mercy here. God doesn't plow forever. There is an end to His anger because of mercy. Lastly, let's point out that like the farmer, God has one goal. In Isaiah's study of the plowman, all the different actions he takes are carried out with one overriding motive. He wants to harvest a crop. He doesn't plow for the sake of plowing or plant for the sake of planting or thresh for the sake of threshing. He does all these things so that he can store away the harvest in his barns. That's his goal. Life is really difficult. Many of us go through hard times and we are tempted to ask, what's the point? Why is God putting me through all this? Why does life have to be this hard? Why does it have to be this way? And it's not that God plows and breaks and threshes that troubles us. The problem is we want to know, does any of it matter? Is there a purpose to this suffering? Uh, the Japanese writer Murakami says some things to this end. He says, uh, here's one quote, Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Say you're running and you think, Man, this hurts. I can't take it anymore. The hurt part is an unavoidable reality, but whether or not you can stand anymore is up to the runner himself. That's in his book on running. And uh, he's saying that you don't get to choose whether or not to have pain, but in his way of phrasing it, you can choose whether or not you're suffering. And you have to understand he's using pain in terms of what's out of your control and suffering in terms of, of whether or not you can put purpose to the pain. And, it, and it, the way he looks at it is, if pain has a purpose, then it's not suffering. Another statement that he made that's a little clearer is, I can bear any pain as long as it has meaning. Well, Christ gives a meaning to suffering. There's a purpose to it all. Life can be very difficult, but we know there's meaning because God has a goal. And that goal is called by Paul an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. You know, the point of the whole thing, what God is looking for, is a harvest in the resurrection. That's what he wants for all of us. That's why we go through everything that we go through. It's not so that you can have a nice house or that you can have a perfect life here, but it's so that when you're raised, you're raised up to life and not condemnation. When you're raised in eternal glory, you're raised to live with God forever in heaven. And if that's not going to happen with you, then nothing else in your life matters. That's God's one goal. That's His harvest. I want you to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and there are some people there in Corinth who, who don't believe in the resurrection. There are some that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but then there are others who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but not in the resurrection of the believer. 
And so they're trying to have church, they're trying to be Christians without any thought of the afterlife. Now maybe it's cultural influences or just misunderstandings, but Paul reasons with them very logically here in these verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 16 and following. Here's what he says. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you understand the argument that he's making there? None of this makes any sense if there's no life after death. This world is completely meaningless without the resurrection. Jesus rose from the tomb to show us our future gives us meaning. There is hope. There's a reason for it all. That's God's harvest. That's why he plows. That's why he threshes. That's why he plants. Because he wants all of us to live with him forever in heaven. And so as we look at this parable, it teaches us some very important things about God. We see this farmer and we learn several important things. We learn that God doesn't have to explain himself. He is the explanation. And like the wise farmer, we'll align our lives with him to get the best results. Number two, we see that God does just what is needed. The farmer doesn't always plow. When it's time to plant, he plants. When it's time to harvest, he harvests. And God does just what is needed for us. Sometimes it's time to answer prayer. Sometimes it's time to tell us to wait. Number three, we see that God is always merciful. The plowman doesn't plow forever, and God doesn't stay angry forever. There is a mercy that balances out his anger. And finally, God has one purpose. The farmer wants the harvest. God wants our salvation. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die for us. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. And if you haven't obeyed the gospel tonight, like we talked about a moment ago, God is doing tonight just what he needs to do for you. He's calling you to come, to give your life to Christ, to repent of your sins, to confess Jesus is the Son of God, and to be baptized for the remission of your sins. The water is ready. We can do that tonight before you leave this building. But if you're a Christian who's strayed away from God and you need prayer, you need help from your brothers and sisters, God is ready to do just what you need. He will listen to the prayer of your Christian church. And He will answer it. He will forgive your sins. But you must come to Him. You must repent. You must bring your life to Him and let Him take control. Are you ready to do that? If you need help, we ask you to come right now as we stand together and as we sing.